Welcome to the Recombobulator Lab with Jason Gramnai and Chris Dominic. So I am super ignorant about this, but I keep reading articles about greenwashing. What the heck is that? Well, greenwashing and uh, is um, the act of companies that um, make environmental claims that aren't supported uh, in a bid to convince consumers to buy their products. Um, that's a very simple way of doing it. And is it because there's no legal ramifications to uh, lying about it? Basically, yeah. I mean, it's a real test to the regulator. Like, could be just, could be fraud a, though. Could be fraud. I'm just saying. Mm, you know? And so it gets. Oh, and so what happens in marketing? There's <laughs> a thing called puffery. Yes, the puffery. And puffery yeah. is fascinating because, you know, in the in the US, the FTC came out with new green marketing guidelines about ten years ago. So, for example, if you put a green leaf on the side of a package, mm. you you have to then. Well, actually, I'll start again. You can't put those kinds of imagery on a package because it gives the normal consumer, the regular consumer, the impression that that product is beneficial for the planet. Now, that was the rule. It's not being enforced. So if you go down the aisles, of the, it's, it's fascinating. And one of the great examples is a brand called Seventh Generation. Their logo is a green leaf. Uh-huh. Well, in the case of that company, um, they make diapers. And what they do is even though they're plastic, they, they dye them brown back in the day. Now, if you're buying a brown diaper, you're giving the impression to consumers that it must be natural or not plastic, but... It's recycled no. plastic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or, yeah. Oh, wow. That was about 10 years ago. So the consumer has no chance in the face of greenwashing. You know, so in our category, major, the biggest brand, they spend $8 billion a year on marketing um, just in the diaper category alone. And the consumer has no chance. Like you are just, it's a wash with messages saying we're better for the planet and it was just a small thing but now it's gone industrial scale and some Mm. of it is the ability for the regulators to keep up now particularly now the ftc in the us is very weak but in the uk there's been some fascinating news the last couple of weeks like boohoo is a big fashion brand they got nailed i think zara got nailed h&m got nailed these are these fast fashion brands so there's activity which is interesting. But then the really interesting thing is over in the financial world, Deutsche Bank has a subsidiary, DWS, I think, uh, that does ESG. And so they had, a, a, they had been claiming to their investors that they were making investments in companies that were you know, going through their screen and saying they're better for the planet. And they absolutely weren't. Wow. And it's so I always think of greenwashing in the consumer-facing space, but now you've got this thing in the financial thing. It's like, oh, it's just everywhere. And yeah. if we've got time this episode, I want to I want to segue from greenwashing to sports washing because it's quite of a funny, interesting thing around live golf and this whole business with blah blah washing. It's it's fascinating. It's like this, this, it's everywhere. This, is this is this analogical to what? I saw uh, several years ago with organic, right? Uh, like, uh, like, yeah. like everybody suddenly was organic and then there would be these reports, which is like, okay, like we took a look at this farm and it's pretty damn far from organic. Like, it's you a know, bit mon- it's organic with pesticides. Yeah, uh, it's a bit yeah, mon- that, Monsanto. It's Monsanto organic. That's, but it's yeah. even, Tom might correct me, I think even with organic products, you only have to be 90% organic. Like, it's kind of interesting. It's, you know. Um, well, the, 
over time, there's been changes in the in the in the technical regulatory definition of organic, and it's gotten to a level of complexity. If you pull out the regulations around definitions and all that kind of stuff, unless you're getting paid a lot, you're not going to pay attention to that. Yep. Right? Yeah. And yep. I think that it, one of the reasons why it's so per- pernicious, uh, I think, is it is the ability to hide behind mountains of technical language and, mm. and you know, dancing on the head of a pin distinctions yeah. that most people not only uh, not only wouldn't know how to evaluate, they actively don't want to evaluate. And mm. I think that right. that's one of the underlying problems with, you know, everything being done on the back of the consumer making a decision. And then if we don't make a decision, clearly demand doesn't justify it, right? Is... Mm is in this cognitive research and understanding that even though our brain has a lot of capacity mm-hmm. for processing information, we only have so much attention. Mm-hmm. And our attention is a lot less than we as as sentient beings want to admit. Yeah. Our, our choices that we make every day, 80% of those choices are not real choices. We're just reacting to systemic uh, behavior patterns that that we're part of. We're not actually processing and making cognitive mm. choices. We're just going along with things. And so, when when we're at the grocery store buying something, our ability to pay attention is is largely not there. And so we don't. It's so fascinating. I'm, I'm looking as, for my as copy Chris of was thinking, looking around. I'm looking for thinking <laughs> fast and slow. There's this book that I just yeah. absolutely love. Daniel thinking Daniel Cobb. Yeah, yeah, and it's it yeah, that's absolutely. that is such a great example of how that works. But you know, as you're as you're describing this, it, the thing that I'm reminded of in my, in my work, we're talking to focus group participants and mock jurors, and some of the things that we'll hear out of people. Let's just say we're working on a case that involves a regulatory agency, like the FDA, mm-hmm. and people will learn for the first time that the way the FDA manages things is they don't necessarily independently go look at all of these things. They don't run their own studies. They make the company get a study done through a a university and then submit that to the FDA. Uh, And when people learn that for the first time, a lot of times they're like, wait, wait, well, what? Hmm. The FDA doesn't actually do the investigation. They just expect that the companies are going to grade their own papers. And, you know, when they learn, okay, Duke doesn't have a motivation, you know, if they're going to do it, or Stanford, they, they don't have a motivation to go screw up the study, right? I mean, just, just for the money. But it's tough for people to think not these guys are going to get greedy at some point, and right. there's going to, you know, these these things might not be real. And it makes people really, uh, it makes their the scale of their skepticism go up. So... What what's to be done about that? I mean, well, we, well, it, it, we, it didn't always used to be that way. Um, industry industry funded research as the dominant f- source of knowledge in the public debate wasn't the norm. And in fact, in the seventies, um, in the United States, there was a research advisory council that basically advised Congress around basic research and setting priorities about what should be researched and why. And they and they they created not only the ability to have standards around what kind of research was going on, but they created a culture of research that was important. Mm. And that's been 
lost in the industry, you know, industry-funded research sort of paradigm. You know, I would say that it, it, it it's something the EU does get some credit for is they mm. still fund a ton of research. Uh, at universities, almost to, almost to the degree you're like, are you kidding me? You're funding oh, this, right. right? But at least they're doing it, and it's not all just pushing it on an industry who's self interested. It, but it's, it's ter- okay if it's biodegradable. <laughs> depends, depends who you ask. Biodegradable. <laughs> it's biodegradable. Biodegradable. It's where? You know right, what, Chris? Uh, as Jason my- will tell you, it nothing degrades in a landfill. Thank you. My Ford Bronco is biodegradable after about 3,000 years. Like it's okay. the most useless term. I was just in an industry meeting about the Australian Organics Council and it was hilarious because we had like composters. <laughs> we had composters and landfillers. And one of these guys is classic, like full on, like he fourth generation commercial composting guy. He's, We've got to ban the word biodegradable. It's bullshit. Sorry, bleep that out, Maria. But it's it, but it's interesting the power of language and all of this. So you think about greenwashing as a concept, and you think about power of language, and you think about Tom's point. You walk into a supermarket, you've got Buckleys, as we say in Australia, meaning you've got no chance as a consumer. You've got thirty seconds. It's all automated in the back of your brain, and you just pick up the thing and think you're doing the right thing. But the, and the cognitive dissonance is amazing. You are ask 100 people, will you make the green choice? 95% say yes, but only 5% actually do when they get to the, the checkout. And that's a huge, huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's massive. So, um, okay. So, yeah. so my, my plastic isn't biodegradable? Come on. Okay, Chris, I'm going to take you out the back said, shed here in a minute. And okay. All right. We're so going to have I a just, conversation. So, listeners, I am clearly just poking the bear. I, I just It's obvious, right, that you know that I'm doing that. Um, but okay, but hold on though. I mean, there are there's still renewable things, right? I mean, it. I just want to like, where's the line on this? Because I find it really interesting how, like, I'll give you an example of something that I think is really int- uh, fascinating locally. Is that the, na- the the nature of people to want to protect forest land is wonderful. But one of the things mm-hmm. you see in the Pacific Northwest all the time. Hey, you lived here for a while, Tom. You must you must remember this is that people will be like, well, don't touch that that forest at all. And then the forest will overgrow and get hit by lightning or, or uh, somebody will start to throw a cigarette into it and it will completely burn down. And then people will act like it's a real horrible shame. And when somebody says, well, if you really want to prevent that from happening, you're going to have to manage the forest. Yeah. Uh, and people are like, no, 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 that wouldn't be right because it's a natural forest and you wouldn't want to manage it. And it's like, oh my god, I don't know if I can handle this. This is it's hmm. that is not a logical way of seeing this, but it's a value thing that people have, right? It's it the value is getting in the way. It doesn't feel right to them, even though practically, they're they're not making good choices about this. Uh, what, uh, what do you have to say about that? Well, it, it it's it's a case of I think two problems. One is over time we normalize we normalize things to a point in which we no longer remember common sense. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, in some ways, let's take your example of the forests, you know, for a lot of people in the Pacific Northwest, it's an entitlement for recreation. True. And I don't mean that to demonize people for going out and walking in nature. It's an awesome thing to do, Mm -hmm. but that desire to, um, have that resource to go in and not be worried about natural fires, uh, frankly, predators, (laughs) 
<laughs> other mm-hmm. things, you know, leads people to basically support doing nothing when that's not actually the thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think the way we normalize things is is, is quite um, problem. I think the other, and this circles back to some of the question around regulation and policy and so on. We have the ability to create, and I'll just use the United States because I know it a little better than Europe. And and you know, Chris, better than all of us, you know, people in the United States love to use the legal system to enforce policy. Yeah. Um, rather than sort of, let's say, regulation. If you wrote a set of laws that basically made it effectively fraudulent for any action of greenwashing with real teeth, you'd see that it would be worth it for yep. people to check um, the excesses and the abuses of, of, of claims that can't be backed up, right? And, Undoubtedly. And similarly, sim- similarly with ESG reporting at the corporate level, you know, if there were real teeth that gave people like shareholder activists and, and whatnot, gave them real ability to um, introduce um, penalties you would see a real change, and it and it nurtures a culture of, of that changes over time and becomes you know sort of self self uh, fulfilling, if you will. And and you know it's it's too bad that we don't have those conversations. We just get outraged and then we move on. Mm. Yeah. So no, it's real. interesting. Backing up to the forest fire thing, so Australia had the biggest historic massive fires last summer because we had all this fuel, right? We had fuel in the forest and we had a liberal government, so we had a Republican federal government. And when you so mean the- fuel, you, d- you don't mean like barrels of fuel no. lying around. <laughs> no. You mean like, like Lots of underbrush. underbrush. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And so the liberal government's there. Anyway, the country burns to the ground and you had the... Okay, Fox- hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Liberal government, you got to translate yeah, for the Americans. The Republican government, and again, <laughs> the, the greatest curse we've put on the world, and we're really sorry about this, is Rupert Murdoch. So we've got Fox News in Australia, um, then after the disaster, saying, um, uh, really struggling with, you know, we've burnt, we've burnt the, the country to the ground, um, and that was terrible forest management by the by the Murdoch media. <laughs> like, it got really confusing because the Murdoch folks and the we've got to do a better job of managing forests. Like, we, we, we I think we lost a million koalas, which is a big problem for us because oh. koalas are kind of important. I mean, they are good eating. Just a little bit of aioli. Oh. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But ko- koalas are kind of a big symbolic thing. But it was just funny watching them turn themselves into a pretzel. Um, but what's really interesting that came out of all of that was the Indigenous Australians, Okay. The Australian Indigenous population, they are the longest um, surviving um, group of people in the world. And they have an entire technology about how to manage forests, which does include burning back, which does include sometimes you just let it rip because when you do let something burn, the growth afterwards is accelerated. So it's just really interesting. There's this, I felt like there's this sort of white man arrogance around we know what we're doing and then you watch the whole country burn to the ground and our indigenous folks are like, you're all idiots. Like you have no idea how to manage uh, land. Well, well yeah, we, we, in the United States, we learned that lesson in 1988 in um, um, Yellowstone. Oh, really? Oh. Did that thing burn to the ground? Uh, I it, thought you were gonna. It, this was gonna be like a dating adventure. You were talking. No, no, about no. Or huge, something. huge forest fire in Yellowstone, um, and you know it was it was at that time in the late eighties where things things like that were starting to play out in real time on television, mm. right? So everybody was experiencing oh, right. it. 
yeah. you know, via media in a way that previously maybe they had not. And so we all went through the cycle of why was this why was this fire so bad? And it, mm. and actually there was real dialogue around mm. forest management and the the fact mm. that in in nature unfettered forests are going to burn and yeah. they knew themselves mm-hmm. and you know all that kind of stuff and you know we went through all that but but did we sufficiently change mm-hmm. you know i remember some of the 90s getting into you know some conversations about changing policy around resource management but it largely fizzled out and mm-hmm. and you know people haven't paid attention and and we yeah. still now now we just get outraged. Same thing happened. Yeah. It happened again. Can we hang on that for a second, though? Because uh, here's yeah. there there was some effect to the Smokey the Bear campaign. I don't know if they're yeah. really rocking that anymore, but I remember somebody actually talking about the before and after of that yes. particular campaign. I remember that the Native American crying. With the trash, Keep America beautiful. Yep, that sucker worked. Like the the amount of people that stopped littering after they saw the Native American guy crying. It, I mean, but this is this is something, Tom. Right? This has nothing to do with policy wonk. This has to do with an emotional appeal that, uh, that yes. pokes pokes its finger at values and makes you say, "Do you really want to be a part of that or not?" Like, and it. I just wonder if we've lost some of those beautiful learnings. Jason, did you ever see the Native American guy crying? You never, you know, they didn't Chris, do it in, in, in Australia. Chris, Chris, that was part of my literature review for my PhD, and I'm now going to blow your mind. Oh. I hope, I hope there's a back sheet behind you because you're going to be like. I'm going to buckle in. I'm buckling in right now. Keep, the Keep America Beautiful campaign was started by the biggest polluters in America in the 50s. The 1971 crying Indian thing, obviously lots of problems there. The Indian was in fact Mexican um, and the whole core of that campaign I'm sorry but it's true and this is where we've got, you know, intelligent people who are just taking it and the whole thing was the polluters are literally saying, hey user who just bought our product, can you clean up our shit? And that's the whole campaign and what's insidious is you've got the Keep Britain campaign, keep Britain beautiful campaign, keep Australia beautiful, same method. And to Tom's point, this is a fascinating example where big companies in the 50s starting but really peaking in the 70s, and there was no coincidence, right? 1971, a first Earth Day in Santa Barbara. In 1972, you could see the big polluters, the big producers are like, oh, shit. And so that campaign was so effective. And on reflection, it's... It's, it's, it's an amazing thing to think that the user, the consumer, is somehow responsible for cleaning up yeah. all this crap. And we see it today, plastic, marine plastic waste around the world in oceans. There's a $2.5 billion fund called the Alliance to End Plastic Waste, which is funded by all the polluters, Coke, Danone, everyone. And their focus on that funding is we are only investing in things that can recycle our mess. They're not interested in any other solutions. So the campaign worked at convincing people to not throw stuff on the street. Yeah, that's but but to say that it's bigger than that would be too much. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary. Well, I I was just I was just listening and uh, to a podcast and another podcast. Not I'm not cheating on you. What? <laughs> no, we've got an exclusive um, with you. We, we pay. We well, pay you all that never, money. Friend of the lab. Friend they would the lab. never let me. Friend of the lab. They would never let me speak. Um, but but it, it reminded me that that um, the the fossil fuel industry created the 
concept of a carbon footprint. Oh, really? Interesting. So just to Jason's point, as an analogy, and you know, it, 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 it's one of those things, and, and um, it was it was all over social media today. Maybe not all over. Maybe our, our outrage is exhausted by it. But, you know, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, did basically today he decided to declare COVID over. Yeah, right. Which, today? Yeah. <laughs> Muzzled off. Okay. All right. Which, today? <laughs> Which is, as somebody who who is reluctantly forced to travel for work right now, mm. Mm. just doesn't make me feel very good. Because it, right. it's, it's basically saying, we actually don't care about the very small percentage of people who are going to have long-term health effects because of something we could have prevented. And we still could limit if we were willing to do something. Um, but mm. we can't be bothered anymore because our we've we've moved on. Yeah. Mm. Well, isn't it yeah, more likely that really really what he's doing is saying, "Look, I got I just most people are going to accept this message right now, so I'm going to say it, and that way I can get on this plane." And people, well, it's six weeks six <laughs> weeks yeah. till the election. What do you what, you know? What do you yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, can can I go back to one thing? It's interesting the whole role of regulation. That Deutsche Bank greenwashing scandal was interesting, and then. BlackRock, the former head of sustainability for BlackRock, has come out. And they're both screaming for more regulation, which is such a weird feeling because I grew up in the 80s and 90s and studying Economics 101, and it's like small government, no regulation, unfettered markets, the markets have the solution, market, market, market. And now in the belly of the beast, they're like, oh, shit. Okay, but you <laughs> Someone's know what? Got, we need guardrails up. And this isn't anti-capitalism. I just think it's capitalism in more of its original form. Just remember the Cadbury Chocolate Factory in the UK. This is an important story. Cadbury, started by Quakers, that the Cadbury Village was a company, but it was a village. It was schools. It was housing. It was beautiful. They had a cricket green. Chris, one episode, Tom and I are going to talk to you about cricket. Um, and that's that was the company activity was that. It was community and it was – and now it's just been denoted into this sort of, yeah, dystopian. And yeah, on that happy well, note, it's the end of the episode. Thanks very much. Bye. Connected, connected to connected to capitalism. Henry Ford, same thing. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And yeah. Dearborn, and he he was he was famous for saying the the role of the corporation isn't to maximize profit. Mm. The role of the corporation is to serve social good. You have to make enough money to stay in business, but your job isn't to maximize profit. Mm. So. Mm. We've got more than a century now of people who have largely wandered off from that way mm. of thinking about economics. So, Tom, yeah. you taught business school. I'm going to throw this back at you because this is when we do any sort of work that involves the concept of fiduciary duty. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you'll hear people struggle with is does fiduciary duty as a legal concept mean you've got to do what's best for the company over anything for yourself now or like like is it is it short term is it long term because you could talk about a business as like well I want to help the brand of the company and if I want to help the brand of the company I actually wouldn't necessarily do things that are short term profit oriented but right. I'm saying this right now because Jason I think the theory behind this is if you're calling for change and regulations it's because you are it might be because you're sitting on a board and you're realizing that the way a lot of these debates end is because mm. somebody says hey guys the standards fiduciary duty I don't care what you think about how we're supposed to do this 
plan A brings more bottom line cash to this company. That's mm-hmm. what we're doing. And right. it puts you in this awkward position on the board of being the guy who goes like, yeah, okay, fine. But I think our Q score is going to go down, which is right. Like yep. our people like yes. us. Yep. And I think our brand's going to take a hit and brand value long term is way more important. But some people are just going to shake their heads and go, yeah, sure. You know, tell that to mm-hmm. the shareholders who want a quarterly right. dividend. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not well, a lawyer, you, right? But still, yeah, I, I I think there's a couple of things. There there's the legal parsing of that, but I think also you think about it from a corporate perspective. The institutionalization of of the MBA class of of you know decision makers and managers mm-hmm. who who that by itself doesn't isn't a terrible thing. I mean, you could have a debate about that. That by itself is not a terrible thing. But when you combine that with compensation structures mm. that are based almost yeah. exclusively on short-term yeah. performance sure. over yeah. long-term value creation, right? Yeah. you know, as a board member who's a champion of fiduciary responsibility with a long-term lens and a, and a, and a focus on long-term value, mm. it's a losing battle. Right. And yeah. and as a board member, how many how many board meetings are you going to sit through before you, you know, you throw up your hands and go, you know what, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to walk yeah. away. And then all of a sudden you've got this this sort of echo chamber of we've yeah. got to maximize everything right now yeah. uh, and so on. And and, you know, there is a movement for people who are interested. You could just type it into your uh, search engine. But uh, there's a movement called long termism that's really seeking to rewire that kind of mm. thinking from the basic education all the way through the legal system to, to say mm. we need to rewire because otherwise behavior is not going to change. Yeah. Right. It's a bit like that Simon Sinek's retake on that 1980s book, yep. The Inf- Infinite Game, right? You've got yeah. finite games and infinite games. And um, related to that, so the notion that, you know, in the finite game, there's the rules are you've got to win. And the rules are known. You know exactly what a goal is worth. You know who the players are. It ends and there's a winner and a loser in the infinite game. The game, the, the goal of the infinite game is to keep the game going. So the rules change, but you've got yeah. to keep going. You've got to keep going. And it's funny when you think about Chinese and Japanese cultures, like these are two countries that have the longest, the, the biggest number of multi-generational businesses. Like Kikkoman Soya Sauce is an 800-year-old business. Like oh. it's, it's, it's unreal. I mean, the wow. way they think about legacy and the passing on and the guy that runs Kikkoman now is tied to the original family um, tell that to Kodak complete, yeah yeah oops <laughs> um, it's fascinating some of the structures like the B Corporation is a structure where people can get certified as a B Corporation you change your articles of incorporation so that you're acting in the best interest of all stakeholders not just shareholders interesting but then you just see the other week Nespresso becomes a B Corp so Nespresso <laughs> Tom's head's about Tom's to fall off his neck. Tom's shaking his head. So, okay, so, yeah, so what's wrong with it? Why can't they do that? Because they are a standard coffee company, but somehow, sometime in the 80s, they invented the, the coffee pod, aluminum oh. pods, and the and it is terrifying, the exponential amount of waste they're creating. And they, it's, it's so there's a big outcry that B Corp sold itself down the river. Tom, I'm going to open the floor to you. You've got three hours and your time starts now. Go. <laughs> I, I, I think the most telling thing about Nespresso is that um, I could name, but I won't because I, I, I still want my friends to come visit me in Europe once in a while. Yeah. But yeah. I could name dozens of people who would abhor 
everything that Nespresso does in terms of its impact, but they have a Nespresso machine on their phone. <laughs> Seriously? Oh, man. Yeah. That yeah. must be pretty good coffee. Well, it's um, so similar. <clears throat> it's just, it's it, awful. It's just, it takes it's convenient. No it's convenient. Yeah. Yeah. No effort. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, Keurig's going to send me a nasty gram as a result of this. But I, I tried <laughs> one of those things, and I'm just like, this is this is gross, man. Like, I think the problem is, if you're a coffee nerd, you're not going to do that. You're only going to mm. do that if because it's. Yeah. Oh, anyway, yeah, yeah. I, Can I just okay. segue? You got some. I was just going to say very quickly. I'm hardly a a, a, a coffee nerd. Uh, I. You know, I like what I like, but the one thing about making coffee is I actually enjoy making the coffee. The coffee, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. French yeah. press, whatever it is. Like I like like the process mm. is worth it. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I don't want to just push a button and then I get some something out out the bottom. Clearly, I, I clearly like the process. A lot of people do. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. 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 That's why That's I'm not in charge of, it, of it, literally anything. Yeah. That's right. Well, except for uh, a bunch of states uh, trying to be environmentally sustainable over the next several years, uh, you know, uh, uh, have have fun with that, Tom. Sounds totally. like a, sounds like a really easy job. After yeah. the last, how hard uh, could it be? It's it's yeah. cake, you know. Yeah. Especially yeah. these days, you know, you just plug, you wake up, plug into the matrix, make <laughs> that coffee, and and just yeah. sit for hours. Tom. <laughs> Tom Sisyphus Osdeba. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Can I ask Tom the question that we should be asking all our guests around myths, young Chris? Oh, uh, we got to ask him. It's time. Is that okay? So, yeah, Tom, what's what's a what's one myth about greenwashing that you can share with our listeners? A myth about a greenwashing. A myth. Yeah, that's about kind of a greenwashing. <laughs> it sounds like greenwashing is the myth. <laughs> oh, there you go. Thanks very much. <laughs> Stop the mic. I just answer for Tom. That's not right. Greenwashing is a myth. No. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, sad, sadly, I think um, we don't use it as much anymore, but we still use it. Recycled mm-hmm. content uh, paper. Mm-hmm. It's, it's largely industrial process stuff, and and you know where where paper that we throw out goes now is is you know it's downcycled quite dramatically compared mm. to 30 uh, years ago when paper recycling was actually back into paper. Um, you know, I, I think what does it turn into? Well, um, when you, when you, when you finish this call and you talk to Maria about the editing process and then you <laughs> walk over to the toilet and you have a seat, that's, yeah. it. Oh. that's it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's okay. All right, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but but no, I, I mean, think people still think closed loop recycling is a thing, and mm. it's hardly a thing anymore. Yeah, mm. yeah. From a consumer side, okay. Well, we right. yeah, fascinating. Well, that Make was more great. room Thanks. for landfill, everyone. Yeah. Thanks to Tom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, the fires are creating new space for us, so we just dig a hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. Sorry, thank you, I Tom. Out loud? It was really <laughs> good. It was really good to, to hang with you, man. Uh, thank you it's for doing all the great work you're doing. And I know that you've given some people some inspiration and some food for thought. So thanks so much. Thank you. And I'm thanks, looking Tom. forward to, to the I'm looking forward to listening to you guys when you talk to the fun guests. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> not the not the depressing, despairing guests. Yeah. Next next <laughs> time you just gotta bring you just gotta bring more wine with you and maybe we can liven it up, okay? How about That's that? right. Yeah, we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about good good officiating of rugby, uh, Jason. 
Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I will <laughs> so make sure cruel. to miss that so one. So cruel. Um, okay. <laughs> Bye, guys. See you. Take care, Bye. everybody. Thank you for joining us at the Recombobulator Lab with Chris Dominic and Jason Graham Nye. Catch you next time. time.